Oh my god, I was really hoping and kind of expecting we would actually know who won by now. I mean, you know, it looks it looks good for Biden, but I don't know why. I thought like we were going to know by now. Yeah. Results schedule-wise, I expected it to be a lot worse because I kept hearing, oh, it's going to be days, likely weeks. Yeah. But now since he's um, so close to 270, uh, he just has to win. At the time of this recording, Nevada, Pennsylvania, or Georgia, all of which yeah. I think are relatively, like, not crazy for if he won any of those. For reference, it's just before 9 p.m. EST uh, on the 5th of november thursday when we're recording this so so considering... oh my god it's, it's oh shit it's that one day remember remember it's guy fox day it is guy it is guy fox day i didn't is that the actual name of the holiday because i, I think said, it is actually i could have just said anonymous mask it is guy. actually called guy fox that's remember actually that in hindsight it's so weird okay on the one hand it seems weird that trump supporters like aren't aren't like using like v for vendetta references but i guess they i mean the 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 trump phenomenon is so ahistorical they probably like don't know of any media that's more than like 15 years old and definitely not an actual historical event they know yeah probably not i wouldn't i wouldn't bet on like um, if i was a gambling man i wouldn't bet on the historical um yeah knowledge of uh, trump fans but the the, the tweedo is almost out of the white house <laughs> the t- did you say the tweedo the god dang tweedo god everyone's just becoming mad almost out of the white house in the last few days yeah um yeah i did get super drunk last night so that's um it is on brand it is gonna be nice watching the trump coalition kind of melt down for a while hopefully um, the left can like capitalize on some of that chaos. Um, that's definitely going to happen. It is extremely fun. How do you see them capitalizing on that? I don't know. Just like a lot I, of people I can't are see them like doing anything good with it. I mean, I'm not talking about the Democrats. I mean, like the left, like radicalization pipeline and sphere. Um, just because I imagine there's going to be a okay, lot of people. That makes more sense. Um, who are disillusioned and looking for somewhere else to go politically and who definitely do not like the Democrats. What do you so, think the ratio is though to people who this, uh, to people who are disillusioned to people who are like, even like doubling down on their um, radicalization? I don't know, but people who are doubling down today will be disillusioned, you know, eventually, or at least a lot of them will be because it's not going to like get them anywhere. It's, Trump is like floundering. It's absolutely hilarious. Like watching him half-hearted. I've never seen as half-hearted a coup in my life. Like <laughs> it's literally it's the most no. it is the most American rise of authoritarianism you could have possibly fucking imagined. Like we're going to do a coup, but I'm too lazy to fucking get off my ass about it. And you have like 16 protesters showing up outside of like ballot ballot um counting like locations and stuff like that like it's it's sad and that makes it hilarious i am a little bit worried um in the event that a trump protester from arizona comes into contact with a trump supporter from pennsylvania and they cause a black hole Mm -hmm. because of the um how you have like half of them shouting stop the votes and half of them shouting count the votes 
outside places where people are literally like, yes, we're counting the votes. That's what we're here to do. And then um, the only other way a black hole can be created is if um, someone from the Democratic establishment meets a white Cuban from Miami who doesn't identify as Latino. And they're like, holy fuck, who is this? How can this be? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think... I think what we're witnessing with like, especially like that white Cuban population and, and, and like whiter Latinos in general is that I think, I think that we're seeing like uh, the beginning of an attempt by the, the like Republican party and like the Trump base uh, to accept fully that, that like demographic into the American concept of whiteness um, in the same way that, like, Jay Sakai talked about accepting, um, like, Irish people and Italian people and, like, the Poles and even, like, the Jews, like, into whiteness uh, over time as, as you know, that's just, something, that's just something that white America has done as time goes on, as the percentage of white people in America continuously shrinks. It's like the profit motive. Like, if you have a defined group of white people in a country that rate is just like going to fall continuously because when a white person and a non-white person have a kid, that kid doesn't get to be white. So the number naturally goes down. So they have to give it some stimulus uh, and kind of like accept a new group into the fold uh, every now and then in order to maintain that uh, slim majority and maintain that white supremacy. Reference game on point today, Mark. I'm so proud of you. What a phenomenal <laughs> tangent. <laughs> Is it a tangent? Oh, no, we no, haven't even started. Uh, uh, not dude, very, not sarcastically. Dude, dude, it was so hard trying to finish up um, researching and writing this episode uh, because this episode has nothing to do with like the election or anything like that. And so just like <laughs> trying to follow the election and then be like, okay, I have to sit and write now for a little while and not care. Um, it got a little bit easier as time went on and both like the trends kind of solidified and it started to look uh, really good for Biden. At least, I mean, in terms of whether or not he wins, obviously the results of the election are a complete disaster for the Democratic Party on like a long-term strategic level because they didn't take the Senate. They lost seats in the House and the presidency didn't go by a landslide as nearly as much as it was expected to and as it was uh, supposed to. I don't know how much of a reckoning we're actually going to see in the party about that. But I have heard that there is some maneuvering inside the party to replace Nancy Pelosi as um, leader, which I think is a good idea. No shot. I mean, I mean, I mean, I don't know how big it is, but I've heard that people are more and more people are saying this, you know, like. They're not going to support her re-election in Shahid Buttar. No, no, no. It, gonna it, un- it wouldn't be her, about uh, or... taking her out of her congressional seat. It would just be she doesn't get to be House Majority Leader anymore. It would be, um, oh, God, what is his name? Jeffries. Something Jeffries with an S-H. The only Jeffries I know is Jim. Oh, not an S-H. Hakeem, Hakeem Jeffries. kind of an asshole. Hakeem Jeffries. Why does that sound familiar? Because he's Where have I heard because he's a prominent Democratic politician. No, I'm saying it's like a piece of legislation that he supported, or like I don't know, a, like a soundbite <laughs> or a scandal that he was involved in. You that know, I would recognize him from like, oh, that was that guy. You know, I I don't actually know. God, I've been. He's just yeah. he's just a guy. 
I've been bad. I, I've I've heard from various uh, places that like if you crunch the numbers, the progressive Dems and like the Justice Dems and DSA members did really really well this election, but the, it was it was the like centrist like moderate Dems that kind of got crushed. Uh, like as far as um, down ballot races go. Uh, but I haven't actually checked that for myself, so I don't know if that's the case or not, because I have been, like, it, it, all of the time that I wasn't spending literally writing this episode, I was just, like, watching, flipping back and forth between, like, six different Twitch streams, and 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 haven't showered in, like, three days now, which... There's no reason why that's the case. I, I, it's not like there was anything stopping me, um, but yeah, it has been, it has been a sedentary few days now. Watch watching PA go in. Right, I'm yeah. like, I'm like, geez, I was watching Florida. It feels like I was watching Florida so long ago, and then I remember like, oh yeah, elections don't usually take this long. I I was texting. Um... A bunch of old friends yeah. in uh, a signal chat, and we're all like, "Yeah, nobody's nobody can focus on work right now, right?" And everyone's like, "Yeah, no, we're not. Nothing, nothing's occurring right now." Yeah. I have my my offshore team in India constantly asks about the election, <laughs> like not like they're all in India. They can't they can't vote, but they're all like every day is like, "Oh, is is Biden winning?" I'm like, "I, I hope so. I, I think." Whenever they ask me, like, oh, so do you want Biden or Trump? And I was like, I don't know. Do you like Modi or not? Like, let's both be uncomfortable here, man. Modi or that other guy. <laughs> I, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm not, I, I'm not that involved in mm. other countries' politics that aren't um, Latin American or not Latin American. In, um, yeah, in Latin America or, or Europe, yeah. to be honest. The one thing, yeah, the one thing, the, yeah, the, the biggest thing that frustrates me just about the fact that it was, it was, it had to be Biden or Trump is that as far as U.S. policy is concerned um, regarding the various left-wing um, developments, especially in South America over the past, like, month or so, um, is, is that the U.S. stance towards towards those kinds of developments uh, around the world is about the same between the two of them, uh, which really uh, frustrates me that there was nothing we could do, at least uh, by voting, to help that. Yeah, I, I just want climate change action. <laughs> That's it. I, I don't. I, I don't care if he changes the green new deal into something that is effectively the same thing but calls it the biden new deal yeah if he if, if I, I just want him to rejoin bro if you pass if you pass like sweeping climate change and like infrastructure spending reform you can call it you can name it after yourself that's fine by me i don't give a shit <laughs> yeah it does piss me off when, like, when people I, say he like is in favor of the green new deal like he stopped that at every single turn and also in the last debate oh God, he said yeah. um he's like yeah we're gonna um Everyone's going to have health care. We're going to call it Biden care. And I was like, how are you just going to cuck your boy like that? Out of, out of like the, the one thing like that he attributes more than anything to his presidency. Just take his name right out of there. <laughs> oh, Biden care. Just rude. But even better. Just make us that that just sounds Irish. God and and Kamala Harris is going to. I'm OK with it's gonna, I can't wait to watch Kamala Harris uncomfortably laugh her way through the next four years. Uh, well, I mean, the next two years until she becomes president, when Joe Biden inevitably uh, when he dies. gets hit with the CIA heart attack gun, 
he is the inventor of the CIA heart attack gun. That's very bold of you to assume that they would use it against one of their own. God. Speaking of CIA heart attack gun, okay. my God. If what? I hear one more person say that, that, that like Bernie and like progressives are the reason that this is so close and like that, that we didn't get on board and that's why this isn't working mm-hmm. and not like just an, an aggressively outdated strategy. I'm just going to fucking, I'm going to lose my mind. Um, it's, yeah. It's, yeah. It's you just have boring. to, you just have to push back on it whenever you hear it, because like we're at a point where I think a lot of the democratic constituency knows that their party is like politically ineffective and like, like deep down. And if you can, if you can like effectively and consistently push back, like, Democrats have Stockholm syndrome for their party. Like their party is not working and it's just, it's just been doing the same thing for so long that people assume that we're only even as in as good of a position as we are because of like this constant capitulation to the right. Um, And, and of course, like Mm -hmm. you don't even get to see a comparison between the effectiveness of progressive ideas and the effectiveness of, centrist ideas because the party itself undercuts those progressive ideas so to such a degree that the i mean it's it's like hard to even know how well they could play on a national level if you had the liberal media apparatus and the large and the democratic party leadership behind things like uh, medicare for all yeah, Medicare for all is so wildly popular even in conservative states yeah but yeah consider considering like what how much change in the democratic party's outlook to fracking biden's comments like in the last debate did in like a negative way you have to imagine that the democratic like leadership broadly supporting a policy would have a pretty significant positive change on how people see that policy i just hope i just hope we go full oregon slash portugal in new york and legalize everything up to and including dmt Hey, I'm reading a theory here. Hey, where's the... Oh, my God. What is that sound? <laughs> it's a motorcycle parade. Okay. Oh, is it, is, is it, a, is it a COVID super spreader event? It... No, those are dirt bikes. Those are, those are dirt Why bikes. Why are there dirt bikes? Where is the dirt? What? You, you didn't know this? No. They are wild. Four-wheelers and dirt bikes are, are wildly they... popular in the city. Sudden, what is that like? That's a new thing. No, I feel like always have been. I have never you ever, you ever seen, seen a Chief Keef video, dude. No, I have not There's at the wazoo doing donuts. You're just not I guess with I'm it, not, just not. I guess I'm. I, 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 I clearly I'm not. I get told I'm not cool a lot though, so that's all to be expected. Anyways, uh, we we uh, welcome to We Read Theory, the <laughs> podcast where we read theory, so you don't have to. And um, we are going to be discussing, as you heard, some 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 mild fredophobia right at the beginning there, uh, because we are going to be once again returning to the great boot-shaped country of Italia to discuss uh, another one of their most prolific left-wing thinkers. This time, instead of the Marxist Antonio Gramsci, we are going to be reading the anarchist 
Erico Malatesta, we have ourselves a true, honest-to-God, 19th century debate bro. Anarchist debate bro. He's Vosh. That's kind of hot. Also, you forgot to introduce yourself and myself. Oh my god, here, here. What are our names? We'll just splice it back in. I'm Mark. No, no, we won't. This is no. perfect how it is. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, yes, my name my name is Mark, as you all hopefully know. Although maybe like 20% of you don't know because you're new listeners. That would be fucking lit. I hope 50% of you don't know my name because uh, my name's Alex. I hope I'm meeting a lot of new new people for the first time and that our podcast is growing still. Yeah. You know, you Alex? Theory, buddy? You know, Alex? What's up? I I actually learned a lot uh, reading these, like, kind of cafe dialogues. And principle among the lessons that I learned is that a lot of the arguments that we have with various, like, chuds and liberals today were exactly the same arguments that people were having, or at least Malatesta was having, back at the end of the 19th century. Things really do not change. So a little bit of background before we jump into it. Erico Malatesta was an Italian anarchist. He was a contemporary of other Italian radicals like Gramsci, who we discussed in a recent episode. Though they had pretty little to do with one another, as far as I can tell, they kind of ran in like uh, different circles. Malatesta did, however, have a close working relationship with another We Read Theory alum, the subject of our very first episode, Peter Kropotkin. That Kropotkin and Malatesta knew each other personally and even helped one another in writing should be obvious. Their vision for the future, as well as the road to get there, is shared. That said, their approaches to arguing in favor of this future are really different. Kropotkin's Conquest of Bread spends a lot of time showing the reader that the math checks out on anarchism. Kropotkin roughly approximates the amount of food required to feed a city, and the amount of cloth required to clothe them, and various other necessities. He determines the approximate amount of work that would be needed to produce these things in sufficient quantities, and he allots additional labor time for luxuries like sugar and art. All in all, the main thrust of Conquest of Bread is that humanity already possesses all of the material capabilities it needs to supply everyone with a comfortable living standard, and that systems that seek to create inequality and protect entrenched power are the only thing standing in our way of building that world. And therefore, you don't need to go back to the first episode, just skip right to State and Revolution, <laughs> because we recorded it on a MacBook mic, and you know, it was horrible. You know, it people... Scratchy. People who listen to the first episode t- still tell me that they like it, though, so... I mean, that's <laughs> I good. Think... I'm like, I'm like, that's great. You're gonna love it when we actually have audio, and I actually edit the episodes, and um, I have, like... It's not literally the first work of leftist theory I've read since I like read an excerpt from the Communist Manifesto, and I think something by Oscar Wilde in college, and that's basically it. I was gonna say, um, I've actually heard heard um, similar things. One of one of your unnamed best friends, uh, just because I don't want to dox him on this podcast, um, said, "Yeah, dude, the content was great, but like audio wise, just fucking unlistenable." Like to my face, and I was like, "Oh, okay. I mean, thank you." And he's not wrong. He's not wrong at all. He's totally correct. Absolutely correct. So Malatesta's hypothesis is basically the same as Kropotkin's, but he dispenses with all the math in favor of an ideas-based approach. And let me tell you, my brain is still recovering from all the high-level ideas. Was that supposed to be a Trump voice? No, it was supposed to be Dave Rubin. (laughs) (laughs) 
To be honest, I haven't heard him speak that many times, just um, seen his tweets now and again, so it's okay. Totally okay. So, where Kropotkin wrote what is essentially a lecture, Malatesta produced a series of dialogues, 17. These 17 can be broken down into three major groups based on when they were written. The first 10 were written right at the end of the 1800s, while Malatesta was hiding out in Ancona from the Italian authorities. By this time, Malatesta was already more than familiar with the Italian criminal justice system and and even the interiors of its jail cells. While hiding, Malatesta seems to have been unable to resist continuing to publicly advocate for anarchist principles, a trait that continuously gets our friend into trouble. The setting of the dialogues is based on Malatesta's particular tendency to argue with various people at the local cafes at this time. Just before the turn of the century, Malatesta found himself once again on the wrong side of Italian law and ended up under house arrest. He escaped and didn't return to Italy for more than 10 years. After his return in 1913, he reestablished himself in Ancona and wrote four additional dialogues, bringing the total up to 14. Of course, in 1913, World War I was just around the corner, and the war created yet another situation in which Malatesta had to flee his home country. He returned for the last time following the end of the war, and it was after his final return that he wrote uh, dialogues 15 through 17, completing the series that we'll be looking at today. Malatesta is represented in the dialogues by Giorgio, a witty and, I assume, rather handsome anarchist who's invited to the cafe by his friend Michele to argue with various chuds and liberals. These chuds so and liberals... What- I gotta interrupt, Mark. What 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 makes him give off like a sexy vibe? Oh no, he's, he's just he's just. We're all anarchists. He's he's the author insert. So I assume um, Malatesta thinks he is hot because that's just how author inserts do be. Oh okay. No, I'm not. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm sorry. There's nothing in there that like that like where 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 someone's like, oh, Giorgio, you're so sexy and cut. That doesn't happen. I, I mean, I mean, it, it could it could happen. I mean, I, I don't think we talk about ugly people on this podcast just by virtue of their existence. Being a communist does scientifically make you hotter. Um, let me think. We have definite. We must have talked about at least one ugly person on this podcast. Beauty's in the um, eye of the beholder, my guy. Um, God, I can't. I Lenin. Can't sexy bro very sexy that giant beard um, oh great facial hair um except um, for angela davis who did not have facial hair but was dude dude you know. dude noam chomsky in the 1970s could fucking get it or in okay, the 80s maybe he's like i mean now he's gandalf, now he's like gandalf yeah i i do want to see the old as fuck michael parenti versus old as fuck noam chomsky debate i do i do need oh, i think i say like life. aggressive Jeez. boxing match like I've been, I've, I'm already, I'm already used to watching old men debate, so uh, that would be fucking lit. I yeah, sounds nice. So right, I'm, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, as as I said, uh, Giorgio was invited to the cafe to argue with various chuds and liberals by his friend Michele, and these chuds and liberals include Prospero, a member of. I'm not going to say it like that. <laughs> and these. Ch- <laughs> so much effort into no i mean it was a fucking it wasn't supposed to be a serious pronunciation anyway but i was just like if i do it once i'm gonna have to do it every time and i'm not gonna do it every time <laughs> prospero a mem- uh who is a member of italy's real deal big bourgeoisie there's cesare a petite bourgeois shop owner and ambrogio 
a magistrate and representative of state power and liberal political sentiment. Throughout the first 10 dialogues, Giorgio, Chad anarchist, parries and reposts their emotional barrage with facts and logic. The first dialogue occurs between Michele, Giorgio's baby anarchist friend, and Prospero, the bourgeoisie landowner. Michele argues a point any socialist should be familiar with, that the world is in a state in which those who work to produce the wealth of the world have very little, and those who have the most don't seem to work at all, but instead they sit atop a pile of property, and they let that property accrue wealth for them. Michele says that this arrangement is unfair and unjust, and Prospero says something kind of interesting. He doesn't really deny this fact at all. Instead, he argues that inequality is and has always been the way of the world, that violent force is the only thing that brings people into line and creates order, and that this being the way of the world, he has no moral qualms with sitting atop the system when, if not for him, it would just be someone else. I've heard, like, okay, literally you said we're, we've been arguing about the same things for centuries. Yeah. That is so many, like, yeah. talking points yeah. wrapped yeah. up into one fucking sentence. No, it's it's literally uncanny. It's literally uncanny. It's not even kind of different. Um, we'll, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get into some of the other spicy stuff. Um, this is painful. Just, just so and, you know, I'm not having a good time. And Michele says that he's going to invite his friend Giorgio to the cafe to argue on behalf of anarchist ideas. And Giorgio becomes the main protagonist of the dialogues from that point on. Michele leaves, which marks the end of dialogue one, and we begin dialogue two with Prospero arguing not against Giorgio, but against Ambrogio, that liberal magistrate we were talking about earlier. Ambrogio is pissed off at Prospero because he gave the game away. For Ambrogio, from his perspective, the wealthy have accrued their fortunes through the expression of human agency in accordance with the inalienable rights of man, not force. And I found this clash between the two of them so interesting, because here you have Ambrosio, whose head is filled with all these classically liberal ideas about property rights and the like, and he's trying to exalt the wealth and power of men like Prospero as just and virtuous, and Prospero, the man in possession of all that wealth and power, just has no time for it. And I thought that was a really interesting observation made by Malatesta in the text. Those who are enmeshed in liberal institutions generally believe their system is one built on justice, voluntary association, and free exchange. Leftists attempt to peel back the veneer of those lofty ideas to see what the inner mechanisms of our world look like. Between these two, the perspective of the largest property owners, the true seat of power, is much closer to that of the leftists than it is to that of liberal institutions. Apple CEO Tim Cook, for example, knows that the rare earth minerals that go into iPhones are extracted in appalling conditions. He knows that phones are assembled in factories where workers are underpaid and overworked. He knows that this state of affairs is maintained through American military dominance, and he likes it. That state of affairs makes Apple more profitable. Now, a guy like Steve Jobs may have been a visionary and innovator, and that's cool. The ideologues like Ambrosio can eat that shit up. But the actual property holders who are tasked with extracting profits can't perform this function without understanding that extracting profits requires exploitation and that extracting consecutively larger profits year over year requires consecutively greater exploitation. When Ambrosio hears Prospero admit to this understanding, he says, you sound like an anarchist yourself. And I just find that tiny little conversation so demonstrative of the idea that the bourgeoisie is already class conscious and it already analyzes the world along materialist lines the same way that leftists try to get members of the working class to do. 
Yeah, like when people say like, "Oh, I don't, I don't follow politics." Okay, that's great, but your landlord does, your boss does, your CEO yeah. does, the guy who decides whether or not you have healthcare or decides what kind of um, power he's going to give to law enforcement does. So, might want to get yeah. on that, you know, buckaroo. You don't follow politics, but politics follows you everywhere. That's that it. Deep, Mark. That's the tweet. <laughs> oh, God. I can't. There's a reason I don't give you the login info, Mark. So Giorgio spends pretty much the whole rest of the first 10 dialogues arguing with Ambrogio, which is also telling. Ambrogio doesn't represent property owners like Prospero and Cesare. He represents liberal civic sentiment. And from this, I glean that Malatesta is trying to tell us that this liberal sentiment the concept of the humanitarian state, the defense of private property as an inalienable right, is the most important obstacle for anarchists to come. That's not to say it's necessarily the most dangerous, but unlike the pure power politics of the bourgeoisie, liberal sentiment has a lot of points of access for anarchist rhetoric. Remember, Ambrogio got upset at Prospero for speaking in such a force-centric way, even in a private conversation. He is a true believer. He believes people deserve rights. He believes in using rhetoric to bring people over to his cause. He believes that the state deserves to exist because it improves people's lives. Each of these beliefs presents an opportunity to challenge liberal politics by actually appealing to liberal goals. Let me show you what I mean. Ambrogio attacks the idea of redistributing wealth by arguing that it infringes on the rights of property owners. Giorgio says that the general harm done to the population by allowing so few people so much wealth and power is unacceptable. And Ambrogio says that it's not a matter of social utility, that rights come from a higher source. Giorgio says, where? Ambrogio says, well, all people have the right to the fruits of their labor. And Giorgio, Chad anarchist, says, well, that's exactly the problem. Take a landowner like Prospero. How does he make his money? People come to work the land, and he takes a portion of what they produce, even though he does none of the work. So the system of property is actually infringing on people's rights, not guaranteeing them. To this, Ambrosio responds that if you took away these rights, society would fall apart and people would suffer. That's a social utility argument. And Giorgio basically says, when I said anarchism is good for social utility, you said rights. When I said anarchism protects people's rights, you said social utility. That's a contradiction. And pointing out internal contradictions is one of the most effective ways of arguing. You say stuff like that, and it goes back to what I, what, what you said in the beginning. We've been having these same arguments for yeah. so long. You ever yeah. argue with someone, and like they say something, and you're like, yeah, fucking duh. That's the whole point. You're <laughs> yeah. so, you're so yeah. close. It's like, yeah, like, listening to Tucker Carlson is like that, because he'll like talk about like the wealthy coastal elites, and it's like, you're literally like a multi-millionaire heir who lives in new york like mm -hmm. that's you buddy but obviously he doesn't mean it yeah the 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 most unrealistic thing about this is how in good faith all the argument is because like because like in real life if you tell like a business owner that you think it's unfair that they get all this money that they don't work for you know they wouldn't tell you well that's just the way the world i i own capital so i get to keep it and like that's just how it is baby they would never say that they would go like how dare you i work 80 hours a week going to the gym counts as work because it keeps me focused like um like it's it's ridiculous um yeah 
I have a family member who has been made to work like extra long hours for like um for, for like no like extra overtime pay and they're complaining about it like like i can't believe i have to do this this is awful i'm like yeah you should you guys should just um like organize yourselves a little bit and like take a list of demands to like your management and say like you know this is wrong like we don't want this like we are, we are the workers they're like yeah that makes sense i'm like yeah you should like form a union and you're like they're like ah communism yeah down the back buddy yeah you gotta you gotta if you're trying to organize a workplace you have to be really careful about when you start using that word uh because it will freak people oh i was just talking with a family member but oh still still though i mean that that word will still freak people out even if you're not uh sharing a workplace with them uh because people like there are people like who think it's illegal to start a union and that that's just because of how successful corporate propaganda has been on the on the subject it's really fucking crazy yeah, I heard Walmart should fire your ass. Yeah. Anyways, uh, so Giorgio argues with Ambrosio a lot. He argues with Cesare, the shop owner, a decent amount. And in later dialogues written after Malatesta fled and returned to Italy, Giorgio also argues with Vincenzo, the Republican, Gino, the worker, Pippo, the war veteran, and Luigi, the socialist. All of these disparate <laughs> people have goals and ideologies that create opportunities for anarchist criticism. By comparison, Prospero is less personally present in these debates. He hangs over them or skulks in the background. And that makes sense. I mean, what are they going to argue about? Giorgio says private property is unfair and makes people suffer. And Prospero says, yes, and look at all the money I get from it. It's great. I think there's a fundamental lesson in that for anarchists and really all leftists and even progressive liberals, which is that you can't appeal to the highest and most invested authority for your rights. They know where their material interests lie. And they don't flinch at using violence. However, everyone from liberal proceduralists to fellow socialists to veterans to workers to even small business owners has a moral or material interest that is more aligned with the anarchist cause. And that makes them, if, if you can do it, a potential ally. And um, that was just a, a big interesting lesson that I pulled from the broader structure of the dialogues. But what are the dialogues saying directly well as a whole the series is a comprehensive defense of anarchism from as many angles as possible that's why giorgio argues with so many different people the first dialogue is about attacks on anarchism from the wealthiest property owners their criticism as we saw is that they like being able to profit from people's suffering as we also saw malatesta clearly didn't think this argument necessitated a proper response which is why dialogue one is the only one giorgio doesn't appear in at all in Dialogue 2, we establish that the ideologies of the big property owner, the liberal magistrate, and the small shop owner are all different. In particular, we see divergent attitudes towards the violence that maintains the status quo. Prospero, the bourgeoisie, likes the violence. Ambrogio, the magistrate, bemoans but accepts the violence, though he prefers propaganda. And Cesare, the shop owner, seems blissfully unaware of just how much violence really is required to keep everything the way it is. Giorgio only really appears to tell everyone that anarchism is the only system that does not preserve itself through violence. Dialogue 3 is where the real debates begin. At the end of Dialogue 2, Giorgio said that widespread poverty presents a systemic injustice. Now, Ambrogio says that we can't necessarily say that. Scarcity is a natural part of life, and that's true to an extent. But that fact is largely irrelevant when we look at the specific scarcities associated with poverty. Unemployment, food insecurity, expensive and precarious housing, these are not natural scarcities. 
They're manufactured for profit. Giorgio points to food as an example. There are, across Italy, fields that are perfectly capable of producing food that aren't used for this purpose. Even back in the 19th century, anarchist writers like Kropotkin were crunching numbers and found that feeding all of humanity would be a relatively trivial endeavor on a material level. And this was actually even before the development of the Haber-Bosch process, which I'm not going to get into it, but it was a, a way of producing fertilizer um, that was developed in the early 20th century that is like one of the main reasons why we had this massive population boom over the last um, 200 years. So e even, even before we developed that, um, it was a relatively trivial uh, undertaking to produce enough food to feed everybody. But we don't do it. The reason why is because it's more profitable for landowners to produce less food and charge higher prices for it. So di that's dialogue three. Dialogue four begins with Cesare, the shop owner, recognizing some of the absurdity in the system. For example, there is often a tax imposed on the importing of wheat while there is at the same time a shortage of wheat being produced domestically. Giorgio explains that this is done to protect the profits of Italian landowners. This is where Ambrogio chimes in, talking about how Giorgio pretends to be moral but advocates infringing on the rights of property owners. And that's how we get to the bit that we went over earlier about property rights versus social utility, which bleeds into Dialogue 5 and also completes Dialogue 5. In Dialogue 6... Ambrogio argues that if you just divided all the land up amongst the people so everyone gets a little plot of their own, you would make large farming operations impossible. Giorgio says yes, but what is being described here isn't anarchism. Anarchism is a state of affairs without individual ownership of property, not where everyone owns a little bit. Under anarchism, the land is owned in common, and the people decide collectively what is to be done with it. Ambrogio says this system would destroy liberty, and Giorgio says, what liberty? There's the liberty to do something in the abstract, which is currently found in abundance under a liberal state. But what about the liberty to actually do a thing? That liberty requires the guarantee of certain material conditions. The right to eat in the abstract only requires that no one grab food from your mouth as you're chewing it. But the material right to eat means a guarantee of everything you need to feed yourself. That's the difference. Dialogue 7 is a discourse on the nature of communism itself. Malatesta and, by extension, Giorgio, is an anarcho-communist, so he believes that all property should be held in common. And by property, we're talking about productive property, like land and factories and stuff. You can keep your toothbrush. But the state should also not exist. This leads Ambrosio to ask how exactly it's supposed to work. Wouldn't you need a state in order to enforce this? And how exactly are we supposed to decide who gets what anyway? Giorgio responds that neither he nor any anarchist knows for sure what the exact methods a given community will agree to in order to produce and distribute necessities for life. You know, they're anarchists. They don't they don't want to, like, tell people what to do unilaterally. It's kind of hard to create policy when you don't really have a fucking state. He asks, like, how are you supposed to do this? How are you supposed to, like, write a prescription for all this? Yeah. And it's like, well, there really isn't one. That's the kind of the whole point. Yeah, I mean, advocating for democracy is kind of the same way. Is it's like, is it's like, people ask, well, what is democracy going to do? And it's like, well, the point is that the people have a voice. And the assumption is that when people have representation, they will be able to do, to get the government to do the things at a given time that is best for them, as opposed to not having the power. And it's philosophically my belief that that is a better way to run society. 
And it's only really in hindsight that you can decide whether that turns out to be true or not. Uh, you know, in 1897 or so, when this was written, there were fewer high profile um, examples of like this kind of anarchist organizing uh, working, at least as far as I know. Um, and so actually, I find this argument is more convincing now than I probably would have found it back then, uh, because we have groups like the Autonomous Administration in Northeast Syria, Rojava, uh, and we have um, groups like the Zapatistas in southern Mexico, which are groups that have been organizing, maybe not fully anarchistly, but along certain anarchist principles. And it's actually been a really beneficial way of doing things um, for those people. So mm -hmm. that actually makes it a lot more convincing. But the point is to remove the power for one person or a small group to unilaterally make these decisions. That's what state power is. If you get rid of that, then whatever method is decided on by all members of the society must be one in which all people are required to perform a reasonable amount of labor and receive a reasonable compensation for it. Otherwise, people just wouldn't agree and no one could force them to. Now, Giorgio is not talking about democracy here. Malatesta isn't a Republican. He doesn't want a society based on majority rule. He's more radical than that. He's looking towards a system based on unanimous or near unanimous voluntary agreement. Um, so keep that in mind. We're going to talk about um, republicanism in, in, in a little bit. Yeah, not even playing devil's advocate here, but that seems like unanimous or near unanimous voluntary agreement to like pass pass like any sort of decision for the for the group sounds like next to impossible. Yeah. Or is like is is um Malatesta saying that there's going to be no greater community than say like a hundred people? Um, it's not that is well. It's not necessarily that. It's that it's that it, there's a basic faith in people to do a political calculus, um, which is that which is that I need to reach an agreement with this mass of people if I want to have society. And society is a good thing to have because it makes all the finer things in life possible. It makes food security possible. It makes housing security possible. So I just have to, within reason, be willing to make compromises with people. And if I can't, if it's totally unacceptable, well, they're anarchists. I can leave. I can go somewhere else. But there is never a state of affairs where there is a person who has personal control over my means for survival and who can choose to, and, and, and whose approval, specific personal approval I need to have access to them. That's, that's, that's not the state of affairs. So there's an inherent freedom there. I think one of the things that also subconsciously makes people uh, reject this idea, um, other than like the, the sheer, like, the fact that like you could never see this happening in, in your lifetime, obviously just because you're so conditioned to how things are currently. Yeah, it, it can happen is in it, it can happen in certain places, but in like the wider like west Western world, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's just like not feasible to have that any time in our lifetime. It's just not going to happen. Mm -hmm. But it, it's it's the fact that you can't be isolated and removed from political processes, and you actually have to be involved in your community yeah. and like involved with your neighbors and yeah. things like that. And that's just very foreign concept to a lot of people. It is. Dialogue eight is a continuation of the same argument that we were just talking about earlier in which Ambrogio finds himself making another contradiction. Previously, he argued that common ownership of property would destroy liberty, that people need to be able to decide for themselves what they will do. 
Now he argues that we can't possibly have a system based on voluntary agreement. That would be chaos. This is a contradiction. And if you want to make sense of a contradiction, you have to find the through line between the two contradictory elements. In this case, we can point out that whether Ambrogio advocates liberty or order depends on which members of society he's talking about. When Ambrosio exalts rights and liberty, it's always in reference to property owners. But when he talks about the necessity of state control, he's talking about workers. Although his rhetoric is totally different from that of Prospero, and that difference creates an opportunity for anarchists to appeal to him personally, he ultimately agrees with Prospero on the most fundamental point, that property owners ought to have special powers to control society for their own benefit. In Dialogue 9, Ambrosio argues that a society is, by definition, a hierarchy. How do you create a hierarchy without a state? Giorgio says that society is not about domination and hierarchy. It's about cooperation. All the good things we have are the result of people working together for common goals. And furthermore, this fact is extremely obvious. Why are we concerned that people would refuse to work together when it's obvious that working together will make your life better? I'm going to circle back around to Dialogue 10 in a second, because this question is expanded on in Dialogue 11. Um, so Dialogue 11 uh, involves Ambrosio pointing out that although people do recognize that working together makes it easier to accomplish their specific goal, that doesn't necessarily mean that all people have the same goals. So without a state, how do you correct this problem? And Giorgio responds that the state already doesn't correct this problem. It doesn't get people to agree. It just enforces its will as the will of society, regardless of what the people want. Ambrosio says, what about the people who specifically want to dominate others? And Giorgio says that would make them the state. If you desire to control <laughs> people, then those people have a right to defend themselves against you. And since most people stand to lose autonomy with a state, most people would oppose its creation in its absence. Yeah, do you think... Yeah, technically, if Ambrosio is saying like we all cooperate right now, we're all working towards maybe not the same goals, but uh, the goal of a completely functioning society as exists today. Do you think the guy making your 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 bagels at Dunkin' Donuts wants to be there? Do you think that's his goal is to make you a fucking bagel? No, like it, it, it's 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 just through force. Yeah, and that's the difference. But if you if you have a situation in which in which making bagels all day uh the conditions in which you do them are 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 fairly pleasant you're not expected to work two crazy hours and and the compensation you get for that work is 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 perfectly is is within reason it's more than enough than you need to survive uh comfortably and you and you can feel secure in that position then maybe you would want to make bagels you know making bagels is fun and because is it and because it's your choice to make those bagels. So yeah, cir circling back around to dialogue ten, it's really more of a meme <laughs> than anything else. <laughs> Ambrosio asks if all property. So Ambrosio says if all property is held in common, what about women? And Giorgio is basically like, dude, women are people. Nobody, nobody gets to own women. Uh, and it just it reminds me of like those memes, those like those like Soviet Union memes where it's like my girlfriend, no comrade, our girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I, I I read it in the script and like tried to like read ahead a little bit yeah. and be like, oh, he's just making a joke. No. Oh, bro. And you don't you don't even you don't even know. Uh, uh, um, it, also in that dialogue, uh, Georgie was like, no, no, women are 
women are are people they're equals and uh they they just get to be equals they get to decide what they do like men do mm-hmm. and and ambrosio is like okay but science confirmed that women are like not fully people like we can prove this with experimentation <laughs> <laughs> you're a fucking idiot um, <laughs> I, I'm, I think i'm gonna read this one on my own yeah it's it's it's, it's, it's not too just, it's not too long and it's it's not like gonna like blow your mind or anything but it, it is pretty funny i really hope it doesn't <laughs> blow my mind if it's talking just about how women don't deserve rights true true that okay so um keep in mind that all of those first 10 dialogues were written around the same time in about 1897. And then after that, Malatesta is placed under house arrest, and then he escapes, and he returns to Italy more than a decade later. So as we're going through dialogues 11, 12, 13, and 14, what we're reading was written just before the beginning of World War I, and there's been a lot of political development in that time. We already went over uh, dialogue 11, and 12 is what I consider to be the end of the first arc of dialogues narratively in it we return to that original subject of political violence ambrosio argues that the establishment of anarchism would require a lot of violence and destruction giorgio argues that actually it's the establishment maintenance of the state that requires a lot of violence anarchism could be established simply by convincing enough people that it's a good idea and then you just start doing anarchism you don't got to force anyone to do anything just do anarchism on a small scale and lead by example. Eventually, people see how much better life can be, and they choose to join in. And if they don't, that's fine. That in itself is not a threat to an anarchist society. The only real threat would be a state trying to take control. In that regard, anarchists would be well within their moral rights to defend themselves. And of course, here comes Prospero out of the woodwork to remark that an anarchist society could never stand up to a modern army. And to this, Giorgio responds that a modern army is made up of workers and its weapons are made by workers. So maybe don't be so sure. I was going to say, I don't know a lot of anarchists who also aren't militant and love love their guns. Oh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, tread, I'd say like tread, tread lightly. Yeah, but it's, yeah, and it's also like, it's also like the actual, like the size of your cannons is, is, is not the end the 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 be-all end-all of this of the strength of your army um there are logistical things you have to consider there are morale things you have to consider um if if you have like a volunteer army in a modern uh like wealthy country like the united states then 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 the political cost of recruiting uh people to actually serve is a lot higher um so yeah i think people are generally assume way too much uh of like the capabilities of these modern states militaries to control an area that actively does not want them there long term we have experience we know that that's really really hard and um depending on the size of the area it can be impossible even for a military like either the us's or china's yeah dude everyone's um everyone's cool with um their massive guns and still the trees until the trees start speaking vietnamese yeah exactly yeah if, 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 if you if you want a more detailed discussion on that uh robert evans talks about that in um it could happen here he kind of talks about uh in a more specific way the mechanics of how a like the u.s military could run into serious trouble actually trying to hold large portions of the u.s if they went into active rebellion um mm-hmm. 
and how and how that could actually be a really really difficult thing to do because of all those considerations so i mean there's already like small factions of, of oh yeah militaries oh yeah everywhere especially yeah pacific northwest yeah i think i think hot leftist hot take i think we're in for some stochastic violence in the near future um so everyone is that, is that a hot take no I, i'm I'm being I'm, I'm being i'm being of course it's not a hot take even liberals I'm agree so with that sorry. um <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think we're in for a civil war. I think Trump's going to go out like a little bitch. And I think the Trump supporters are going to go out like little bitches, but some of them are, are going to try to take people down with them. Um, so yeah, should probably say it at the yeah. end of the podcast, but everyone please stay safe in the next uh, few days and weeks. The final five dialogues, 13 and 14 being written just before World War One, and 15, 16, and 17 being written after the end of the war, make up what I call the Malatesta Extended Universe. This is where that political development over time comes in. At the end of the 19th century, Malatesta was interested in refuting the arguments that represented entrenched power in the newly formed kingdom of Italy, the landowner and the shop owner and the magistrate. In these final five, we'll see a host of new characters introduced to express new criticisms of anarchism from perspectives that were becoming more influential as time went on. In Dialogue 13, Giorgio argues with Vincenzo, a Republican. Now, believing in representative democracy is not very special today, but in the second decade of the 20th century in Italy, this was a radical position. Vincenzo argues that he and Giorgio basically want all of the same things. So why is Giorgio not a Republican? And Giorgio says that republicanism is the will of the majority, not the will of all people. People whose material interests put them in the minority, for example, disabled people, have no more liberty in a republic than under a monarchy, whereas a system built on unanimous voluntary agreement must make space for the needs of all people. Also, the establishment of a republic does not abolish private property, which is the root cause of the inequality and suffering we're trying to get rid of. Any system, no matter how democratic, will have to engage in myriad injustices in order to maintain private property, because those injustices are inherent to the property system. Can I ask like a, a actual like question about anarchism in general? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, Giorgio says, and this might be my just like fundamental misunderstanding of anarchism. Yeah. Um, I, I know we touched about touched on it a little bit in the Peter Kapokin episode, probably. But yeah, what if what if the will, obviously the will of all people, so the will of like one person or like a handful of people is probably going to be malicious. Yeah. So if someone, I don't know, really doesn't like gingers, okay. right? And they want to just expel all gingers from within their, yeah. I don't know, immediate space. Obviously, if they're not going to do that, they're not going to wait to get the unanimous approval of like their relative community to do that. So I guess, how is it dealt with? So, so basically, um, you're never going to get that done because if the society has gingers in it, they're not going to want to be expelled. So, so, so if they won't agree to it, then you can't get it done. No, I'm saying like vi violently, what? like not asking permission to expel the gingers. I feel well, weird picking gingers now. Well... Well, if you if you don't have to ask them for their consent, then you don't have anarchism. You have a state power. Oh, and that one person is like effectively a mini state power. 
I mean, if they're using violence to make people do what they want, yeah, that's effectively state. That's that is what state power is. Um, it would just be the same kind of power on a much smaller scale. Okay, so I guess the other people would like force him to to leave or something. Or um, well, it's not that you off? force him to leave, but it's you unless you agree to the society that we are having here. You don't get to be a part of the society. You can go try to be a part of someone else's commune, someone else's society. Maybe there's a whole bunch of of of, of assholes who made a little anarchist commune uh, where where they don't have gingers there. Um, as long as they're not attacking other communes and gingers have a place to go, I, I guess it's ultimately kind of fine. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, I mean, if you can't, come to terms with the people who live in a commune, in a society, in a community, um, you don't get to be a part of it. And that's that's kind of how anarchism regulates out the people who are just malicious. Okay. So I feel like anarchism exists in a very, very fluid, very fluid yes. state. Yes. Okay. For sure. People are like air and water. Yeah, exactly. And Kropotkin uh, says, says, says a pretty similar thing in Conquest of Bread, if I can remember correctly. It's been almost a year now. In dialogue number 14, Cesare asks how anarchists will prevent a new government from springing up once the old one is gone. Giorgio says that governments need people to get on board if they want to stick around. This is relatively easy to do because people have lived their whole lives with a government and so assume they need the government. However, once you actually have a stateless society established, the people who live in it will see that life without government is better and would refuse to be submitted once again. Cesare says, that sounds really hard. And they both agree that anarchism truly is the dark souls of political ideologies. In Dialogue 15, we meet Gino. Gino is a regular worker who questions Giorgio on the subject of police abolition. This is a super complicated subject, and we have actually done a full two-part discussion on Alex Vitale's amazing book, The End of Policing, which goes into details why defunding and even abolishing police is a good idea. But the long and short of Giorgio's argument is that the harm police do in the exercise of their power is greater than the harm done by crime itself. Also, policing as a form of combating crime is really ineffective, since it only seeks retribution after a crime is committed. It's unconcerned with the reasons why people commit crimes, and is therefore incapable of preventing them. In an anarchist society, we would need to understand these causes and work to correct them. A system based on unanimous, voluntary agreement would make addressing the needs of potential criminals a prerequisite. In Dialogue 16, we meet Pippo. This dialogue, as well as 15 and 17, was written after the end of World War I, and Pippo is a veteran of that war, and he questions Giorgio's Italian patriotism. Giorgio says Pippo is correct to question his patriotism, because actually all patriotism is pretty fucking cringe. Giorgio opposes the domination of anyone by any other, Patriotism is a belief that elevates one nation above all others. It therefore can't help but justify domination in other nations by the home nation. Pippo says, what about defending your homeland from invaders? Giorgio says that defending one's home from invaders is action against domination and is therefore a good thing. However, if Italy were to invade somewhere else, like it had in Libya, then Giorgio would have to side against Italy. We can love our homes and even our home nations, but our love of humanity has to come first. Yeah, that really that really weirds me out when um. Oh yeah. 
people talk about like children in different nations. Yeah. Um, when when they're like, why why are we why are we giving why are we giving this aid to uh, countries that aren't us? We got to take care of our own people first. I'm like, yeah. Our, and then this people. always comes from people who actually don't want to take care of our own people. Like, why are we letting immigrants yeah, in exactly. when we have veterans starving on the streets? And it's like, well, how about we feed the veterans on the streets? You know that I, I'm I, I'm chill with that too. No, that's communism. <laughs> yeah. The 17th and final dialogue features Luigi, a socialist. Luigi and Giorgio agree on nearly everything, but Giorgio is an anarchist. This means that Giorgio believes in the necessity of revolution and that revolution must abolish the state. Luigi is in favor of a more incremental approach. He supports participation in democratic institutions. He supports the establishment of a transitional state if and when the revolution occurs. On the subject of electoralism, Giorgio says that we will never vote socialism into existence because the state is backed by propertied interests. If it doesn't serve those interests, it'll just be replaced by one that does. He also points out that while a lot of socialists may win positions in the government, they generally have to capitulate significantly to the status quo. This is all true, though I personally have always and will always support participation in democracy as a means of agitating and radicalizing. But Giorgio is totally correct in that we need to keep in mind that our elected officials will get watered down, and if we want to do that, we have to make sure that the course of action is still leading towards the ultimate goal of radical change for society into one that exists for the good of all people. Besides, if you have the working class conscious and organized enough to vote socialism into existence, you have enough to do way more than vote. As far as the transitional state goes, Giorgio argues that any population that contains within it the necessary number of revolutionary socialists to have a revolution at all already contains enough people to maintain an anarchist society. All a state would do is get preoccupied with its own survival. In the meantime, you have to produce the food and the housing and everything else people need to survive. So the question is this. Has your state abolished private property? Because if it has then the decisions governing production are already being made in an anarchist fashion, and the state has no reason to exist. If the state is itself controlling production, well, congratulations, your revolution achieved nothing. And that's pretty much the end of all 17 of Malatesta's dialogues on anarchism. Um, so <laughs> I think we learned a lot there. Are you, are you going to ask me to... Do, do I do I have to do no, it's uh, okay. a summary for the no, class? It's okay. it's okay. Oh, thank God. I was just going to like mention different things that are cringe versus based. How about tell me the the three biggest bastes and the beef, the and the three biggest cringes from the night so far? Okay. 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 Based. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna uh, say them as they come to my head. Yeah. Um, based is community building. Okay. Cringe is electoralism. <laughs> Based is writing books from jail. Shout out Martin Luther King Jr. And Gramsci. And, and oh, and and Gramsci. And I don't believe this was written from jail though. Oh, but still based. This was oh, written yeah. oh, this was oh, written oh, between times where he was in jail. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> On so, rare occasions he found himself outside of jail. Planning planning your novel in jail yeah. is, or planning your writing in jail is cool. You know, he kind of, you know, it's kind of ironic actually, because he trashed on non-anarchist socialists as being like too willing to capitulate to the state, 
and then he gets to die of like heart failure or something while Gramsci rots in prison. So hypocrite much? Yeah, it's pretty pretty um pretty cringy dude. Seems like seems like one of you it seems like the Italian fascist state had more problems with one of you than the other. That's all I'm saying. Uh, Mussolini didn't uh-huh. kill this man or put him in prison. <laughs> I th- <laughs> no shade, anarchists. I'm just kidding. I, oh my god, yeah, yeah. Don't, don't, don't. We, we, we got We got to tread lightly now. We can't, we can't be stirring Please. up any more. Um, I'm not. I'm not CIA. I swear. I have a heart attack gun in my desk, Mark. I will not hesitate, bitch. Anyway, I think the most, the, the all-around um, base conclusion of this is that um, talking to people who you disagree with uh, politically and exposing their contradictions to them is awesome. Yes, expose, yes exposing contradictions is based as fuck. Do we, do we need one more cringe? Oh, um, let me see. Oh, um, intro, I'll, I'll count the intro as part of this episode. Um, American coup attempts within its own nation. Pretty, pretty, pretty cringe, pretty failed. Yeah, they're going in my cringe comp. Oh my god. Oh, I can't wait for the comps. I can't wait. I can't wait. I can't wait for the TikToks. I can't wait for, um, oh my god, what's her last name? Claudia Conway? Or whoever it is? Kellyanne Conway's daughter? Yeah. To just go off about this shit. I'm excited. All right. All right. Uh, I think that's. I think that was everything of value we had to say, and much, much more. Um, I like so, that distinction. That's good. So, how about? Hey, but yeah, if you want to hear more things of uh, no value, you should follow us on Twitter at We Read Theory Pod. Hey. Or if you have things of little to no value, or things of great value that you'd like to share, you can post them on Reddit at r slash We Read Theory Pod. Mm-hmm. And you can call Mark at five one eight six. Are you gonna do this every time now? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. The joke, the joke's never gonna get old. Um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's all the possible plugs we have. Oh. Um, I, I think the, the message we can leave everybody here today is, um, uh, don't just just like you didn't descend into nihilism during the trump presidency don't descend into like complete apathy after trump is gone uh fingers crossed that i didn't just jinx it here's a secret you make yourself get yourself some cheese some eggs some bread you know not not too crazy maybe a little ham make yourself a little croque madame make yourself a mimosa you can have brunch you can have brunch just don't pay 12 dollars for toast did you? Are you reading my tweets, Mark? I'm not reading. I, I am. I am. I am quoting your tweets, but I'm not reading. <laughs> Don't pay twelve dollars for toast. You can have brunch in your own house. Invite some friends. Well, maybe in like a year, invite some friends. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> when we run for for um. If you're listening from New Zealand, you can invite some friends. That'll be our. That'll be our. Our um. Our slogan. Or not, no more malarkey. Not keep merit good again. You can brunch. Anyway, I think that's it. Do you want to do, do it? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, we appreciate you listening to this episode. Thank you for joining us and sitting down with us for a little while. And if we don't see you before, um, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. 
Be safe out there. Love you guys.